I'm, uh, I'm Don Thompson. I am with the Christian Medical Dental Association with Global Health Outreach. That's my uh, um, committed job, my part-time job, where it pays the bills right now is at George Mason University. Um, a couple of disclaimers. Uh, actually, first of all, who was in my talk yesterday morning? Good. Very few people, because I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to repeat almost word for word the directions that we get. Thank you. I'm sure that look that you made was not for me to turn on my microphone, but that's how I took it, so thank you very much. <laughs> I read my wife's mind also. It's really scary <laughs> what she's thinking. Um, I'm... Uh, Part of, part of this, I'm going to review some scriptures that go behind uh, what we're doing, and I'm going to repeat them word for word because they are so important to what we're doing. Let's, uh, let's start out with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to build for you. Thank you for designing the building blocks for the, for the mortar, for the, the tools to slap the mortar into place, for the, the uh, plumb line to, uh, to determine how straight the wall is and, that, and to make sure that it's headed towards you. May all the glory go to you for what we talk about this morning and what we do with these, with these tools. In, in uh, the name of your Son, the Anointed One, amen. In uh, full disclosure, the, the uh, faculty, the uh, paperwork in the, in the book um, says that I have a THM. I don't. I have a Master's in Public Health and Tropical Medicine. That's a, uh, a, the degree that Tulane University provides. And then I also have a Master's in Arts and Cross-Cultural Ministries from Dallas Theological Seminary, but I am not a preacher. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm a skunk poker, as I said yesterday. I try to prod, prod skunks with a nice long stick to get it to move in the right direction. And, and uh, as, as you probably know, when you do that to a skunk, they tend to let loose with something. And I, I try to avoid getting coated with that spray, but sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not. Um, what I want to talk about is, is really getting it done. When we, when we do various things in the mission fields, we want to, um, to make sure that, that, there is a, uh, that there is an efficient way of using our skills and that, and that um, there is an end state. Each of us desires to use our, our skills in a meaningful way. And as healthcare providers, as healthcare workers, we want to use our clinical skills, our management skills, our educational skills, our counseling talents, whatever it is that we bring to the, bring to the, uh, to the fight as, as effectively as possible. And then in a missions context, of course, we want, to bring, we want to apply these skills in a manner that's consistent with instructions that our Lord gave us. So I will review those a, a few times. One of, those, one, of those, uh, uh, one of the sets of instructions that he, he uh, gave us is certainly that we need to be sensitive to needs. The needs need to be of the recipient, not, not uh, self-satisfying. We need to focus on service. We always have to have the goal of steering people to the Redeemer and to the truth of the Redeemer. And then they need to be sacrificial. Now, effective medical missions call for an understanding of the requirements for uh, success. Um, and uh, we will talk a lot about what success might be, how it might be defined. But we want to we uh, examine what we have and what we lack to bring to, to the table. And then how and with whom we would engage. And then the bottom line, though, and what we want to do is make sure that change is left behind. Sustainable change that the national team, the national partners better off, that's, that's absolutely essential or we've wasted time, we've wasted money, we've squandered opportunity, and we may have built resistance 
to people who may be coming behind us who actually may be more have their act together better than us. So we certainly wanted, don't want to do that. This morning we're going to look at what an effective, sustainable healthcare delivery system looks like and then how we might engage to help build such a system. We'll also look at some uh, minefields getting from here to there. Um, when you walk through a minefield, you step on things that go boom, and that tends to leave scar tissue. So I will uh, share with you some of my scars so that you won't uh, need to repeat the same, uh, the same mistakes. I'd like to say that work in, in the health sector has many benefits in building states and, and strengthening governments. I'd like to say that. It's intuitively obvious, but I can't. When you, uh, when you look at what the data, the data say out there, remember, remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I will note that John Patrick said yesterday afternoon that this is a bunch of bunk. But I already had my slides made, so I have to leave it up there. <laughs> Maslow, Maslow uh, has in his foundation that, freedom, that uh, freedom from disease along with air, water, food, sleep, you know, some of the minor essentials of life, that those were, actu- were absolutely primary. And then after that comes safety and then all that social stuff. Uh, family, love, inclusion, and then ego and self-actualization. I spelled act- – well, Bill Gates helped me spell actualization, but I don't use it very often. Uh, James 2, 15 through 17, e- even implies this, where James suggests that we show our faith by our works in, meetings, in meeting others' needs, in meeting those needs that are down at the base of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So anyway, I'd like to say that our work – does this, but I can't. Here's what the current data show. Here's a quote from from this. Uh, th- this is the this is the final, but the draft executive summary of health systems reconstruction and state building. And lest you write too much, I have a sheet here of uh, references. That every reference that I have up here will be on the sheet, and I think there are plenty to go. So you can uh, you can take them on your way out, or you can come up and get them right now. On your way out would be great. Anyway, this report was no. This report was funded by DFID, the British um, Department for International Development. It's the British version of USAID, and uh, it was conducted by the uh, HLSP Institute, which I've already forgotten. But it's uh, it's some uh, some Dutch folks who went and dug into uh, this. They, they, did, they did some research. They did some consensus building. They went out and looked at what had been published. But they studied the link between developmental aid and improved stability, and, and uh, both improved stability and security at the national level, at the regional level, and then at the international level. In particular, they looked at building resilient and responsive states in fragile environments. And they found that there has been very little systemic research into the causal relationships between health and state building in fragile states. We're going to talk about resilient states. We're going to talk about fragile states. We'll talk about all this. But this quote, this is surprising because historical experience suggests that responding to social expectations in a particular, in a particular country can be central to long-term state survival and that de- uh, demands for improved social services, including health, education, and other social service, but focusing on health here, that can be key. Now, this final report that came out in October 2008, easily downloadable, with some other good stuff there on that website, it's a little more positive and offers a little bit more encouragement, so I'll talk more about that later. Now, 
our instruction manual, as I mentioned yesterday. There are some uh, particular factors, despite the the uh, words from this uh, this health and health systems reconstruction and state building report. We've got our own instruction manual, and these uh, points are much more relative relative and relevant to our conversation. So, Philip, you uh, you weren't here when I first said it, but I'm going through this verbatim, just like yesterday. While you may not need to hear it again, I do. So I'm going to go through it again. So here are some here are some key some key things to remember that service to the needy is a characteristic of the kingdom of God. That enough, that should be enough to say, okay, we're going to do this. Uh, Deuteronomy 24: You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, or nor should you take a widow's garment and pledge. Why? You should remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from that slavery, redeemed you from there. Therefore, therefore, there's a link to this, therefore I am commanding you to do this thing. And here's the thing. When you reap your harvest in the field and you have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. If you remember some of the subsequent books after Deuteronomy 24, you'll remember a little story about how our Redeemer came from through the line of Ruth, who was grave, who was uh, was going for these sheaves, these sheaves in the field. So, um, pretty close link to to uh, where we are and how we can be grafted into the kingdom. Later in Psalm 68, God in His holy habitation is described as a Father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. And then Isaiah 9:17. Remember, Isaiah 9 should sound familiar. Christmas time coming up. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah 9, 6. Here's Isaiah 9:17. same verse. Talking about a huge contrast without God. Um, here's, the, here's the contrast. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men nor does he have pity on their orphans or their widows, for every one of them is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth is speaking foolishness. In spite of all this, his anger does not turn away, and his hand is still stretched out. This is judgment apart from, um, apart from the Messiah. This is, this is the judgment that Isaiah is describing that Israel will undergo because peop- the, the people have completely rejected God. We're in a different period than that now. We're in a different dispensation. So, so this drives home the point that in, in, in our day and age, we are to serve the needy. So again, service to the needy, characteristic of the kingdom. That's any old service to the needy. Medical work is singled out by, by Jesus as a sign of the coming Messiah. Remember in uh, Luke chapter 4, where, where uh, the book of the prophet Isaiah where he just happened to be reading Isaiah 61.1. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to to Jesus in the synagogue, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Bottom line, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So that was from Isaiah 61.1. And remember, Christ then had the audacity a couple of, uh, 
verses later to say in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Didn't have to say anything else. Closed the book, sat down, almost got stoned. His uh, audience clearly knew that he was claiming to be the Messiah. So medical work is, is uh, embedded in that. A couple of, uh, a couple of other um, quotes from uh, Isaiah. Isaiah speaks of the, of the shoot that springs from the stem of Jesse on whom the Lord, the spirit of the Lord rests. So this is yet another messianic prophecy. But with, the right, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And then, and then uh, the, the uh, move to the New Testament where, where Jesus is out there doing all that healing stuff, doing all that preaching, and who, who comes up but John's disciples. Remember John? John was the forerunner. He was, he was to point people to Christ. And so he wanted to know if John's the pointer. Is this the pointee? Is this the guy who he should be, to whom he's, he should be pointing folks? So John's disciples, remember John was uh, indisposed at this point. He was in prison. Um, John's disciples asked Jesus, are you the expected one or should we just keep looking? Should we, uh, should we go look for someone else? And Jesus answered in uh, his, his uh, wonderful, subtle way, he said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have, their gospel pre- have the gospel preached to them. Is there anything else that John's disciples need to hear? It's all packed in there. Thirdly, medical work is singled out as a divinely appointed ministry. A lot of us know about Matthew 25. Then the king will say to those on his, sorry, my right, your, your right would be my left, come ye who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me something to drink. I was thirsty and you gave me, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me, in prison and you came to me. And then when he clarifies, because his audience could see where this was going and it wasn't very good for them, uh, the king will answer, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did this to any one of these brothers of mine, even the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Um, it doesn't get much more clear to that than that as, as far as our medical work being a divinely appointed ministry. But just in case you need a little bit more clarity, let's look at what James, James says in uh, James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And then James 2, as I, as I mentioned earlier, it's implied here, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith say, save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So this is the ultimate, so what, who cares? So what, we say this, there needs to be some follow-up to that. So let me encourage you that God has particularly prepared you for ministry. There may not yet be much scientific data in the Netherlands to support particular actions and intents. 
But let's go ahead and look at some of the various aspects of our actions so that we can add to the body of knowledge as we serve our Lord. Uh, my recent experience comes from, uh, from my work in 2006 and 2007 when I was working on rebuilding or actually building the healthcare delivery system in Afghanistan. I just retired from the Air Force and, and uh, was the command surgeon of the two senior commands in Afghanistan for a little over a year. My primary responsibilities were building the healthcare delivery systems of the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. But I had a lot of interactions with the civilian side of the healthcare delivery system since a functioning healthcare system is thoroughly integrated, needs to be thoroughly integrated between the civilian sector and the military. Now I'm going to highlight a lot of governance issues as we walk through this. I'm going to talk about organization and governance since, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, good governance is key to successful progress in building sustainable capacity. Now what's what's good governance? I think, uh, again, our instruction manual defines good governance as, as uh, doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. And as we, as we look at some of these organizational governance factors, I think you'll see it comes back to that again and again. So what are, uh, what are some of the components of a successful medical and public health system? From, from my simple perspective, it's, it's uh, these four areas. There's, there's an area of clinical care that includes primary care, specialty care, inpatient, outpatient care. There's a section of public health, which includes disease surveillance, outbreak investigation response, water, sanitation, vaccination programs, food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of, lot of other aspects in public health. Medical education undergraduate education, graduate education, continuing education, education of allied health professions, community education, lots of different areas of education. And then uh, disaster preparedness and response, emergency medical services, uh, trauma referral. In, uh, in, my, uh, um, in my experience, and I, I think as many would recognize, these areas overlap. You have medical education in the clinical care area. You have disaster preparedness is part of public health. If you're responding to some kind of a natural or man-made disease outbreak, then, then the two of those go, go uh, along together. And, of course, you have to train lots of different health care workers at all different levels in how to do that. So these are, these are all, all uh, overlap and they're functionally linked. The content, so that's the, that's the organization the components of the uh, system. Now, the content of the system um, includes infrastructure, includes actual buildings that you can uh, that you can kick or build. Um, it can, it uh, includes capital equipment, X-ray equipment, laboratory equipment, different instruments. Includes su- consumable supplies and pharmaceuticals, and it includes an awful lot of manpower. And the manpower has to be has to, the people who work in there have to have the right skills. The right training. So, um, so all of those are different, different uh, content pieces of content of the uh, of a successful, sustainable medical and public health care system. Now, to be sustainable, all of these have to exist and be sustained within the local context. You can't take something from City A and put it in Village B, or something from Village C and think it's going to work in in uh, in City D. So all of these things have to be sustained within the local context. 
governance. What is governance in a in a good uh, healthcare system? Well, uh, it depends on organization. Um, different pieces of organiza- of the organization in a in a healthcare system leadership. Leadership includes setting strategy. It includes uh, stewardship. Stewardship, I think, is uh, encompassed somewhat in the word humbly. Walking humbly includes stewardship. And justice certainly includes stewardship. So, again, this is not rocket science. This was written hundreds and hundreds and thousands. Of, when was Michael written? Long time before I went to school. So, so this, is, uh, this, is, this has been around for a while. So leadership, vision, strategy, oversight, stewardship, management. Management includes developing policies, enforcing policies and plans. Stewardship's there yet again, good stewardship of resources. Uh, Authorities for real responsibilities, for implied responsibilities. Uh, Writing up that job description, making sure that it fits the job. A lot of personnel management, a lot of human resources on that side. Financial management, who's going to budget, who's going to pay the bills, who's going to audit and make sure that, uh, that the right money went the right place. Uh, includes a lot of facilities management, maintenance, repair, uh, uh, lots of uh, repair of medical equipment, major problem when you get outside of, uh, of uh, Western medicine. And then vertical organization and horizontal organization. I used these yesterday without defining them. Vertical organization really has to do with the roles and responsibilities for each level of leadership. Includes policies, procedures, expectations, um, resources, authorities from above that support these roles and responsibilities. Has anyone ever been given a task, not really given the authority to carry out that task? Um, Unfunded mandates. Our government is famous for saying you have to do something, but we're not going to give you any money for doing it. So, So good vertical organization includes resources and authorities to do whatever it is you're supposed to do. Uh, requirements to generate a product or a service. Are you supposed to see people? Are you supposed to see patients? Well, that needs to be defined, and you have to have the resources to do that. Some kind of periodic reporting. Do you, do you simply take your money and do your own thing and never, never report back that you're managing your money well? And then, and then uh, so, so the overall is the hierarchy. What's the hierarchy of that organization? And then, and then an understanding of your position within that. What cog do you make up? Are you the blue block? Are you the are you the uh, green the green Lego at the bottom, or are you the the uh, blue Lego at the top in the corner office with all those windows and nice paneling on the walls? It's important to know those things. Horizontal organization. That's really how you play in the sandbox. It's partnering with within the organization. What are the rules for uh, partnering? To whom can you speak without getting permission? Uh, believe me, in the government. There are some real challenges with, uh, with this. That's why there is a formal way of communicating and there is an informal way of communicating. When I was uh, working with folks in the Pentagon, um, it, it would take weeks to do formal coordination of things, and yet we would be given 48 hours. So the informal network is what worked. I would get a heads up from someone two weeks before the formal tasking came out, and I, and I remember getting one of these when I was at U.S. Northern Command. And, and the guy said, we really need this back in, in uh, 72 hours. And I said, that's, that's insane. I can't even get it to my boss in 48 hours. And that's after me doing all the work on this. And then to get it through our complete command in 72 hours, that's impossible. 
He said, uh, actually, we're going to use what you provide to send out to all the rest of the world in the Defense Department, so I need your stuff tomorrow. <laughs> so uh, we did it in three hours, and I told my boss. I got my boss in the room, and, well, he, he's the, he was the, the general in charge, and then the guy between me and him came in the room also because he doesn't like it when I go over his head directly to the general. And uh, told the general what we're doing and said, this is insane, but that's, this is the military. That's the way it goes. And he said, and then my direct boss said, sir, I advise against doing it that way. And the boss said, do it. So anyway, we got it done, and it became the standard for the rest of the Defense Department in two hours, which is scary. We talked about making progress in disasters yesterday. And you can get a lot done. You can really change things when a disaster is going on because a lot of the rules, a lot of the barriers are thrown out the window or have gone down the cliff or something. So, so any, anyway, the rules on how you can play within and between different sectors, it's important to understand. Are those formalized? Even if they're formalized, they need to be informal. You have to have an informal network. That informal network usually uh, usually uses different email addresses, and it usually means there's a lot of anonymity, and you don't say, I mean, you, you say, you know, I heard, or, you know, I, I've, I've uh, some of my buddies were telling me about this at lunch. You, you just have to use different ways of communicating. But that's how, yeah, Carrie's smiling, because we're really driving a lot of things in the government by just that. But but that's how things that's how things work. The formal setting just doesn't doesn't always work. Um, service providing service providers are another important part of the component, uh, or another uh, another uh, portion of the healthcare delivery system. Um, and so the question ha- comes up: Who's responsible for actually delivering these healthcare services? Is it the government? Is it the federal government, the federal, the national government? Is it state or provincial government, local, district? In the U.S., we have a lot of health care that's provided by university systems. There's a private sector. There are people who are not-for-profit. Some of them are accidentally not-for-profit. Some of them are intentionally not-for-profit. And then, and then, of course, uh, NGOs. A lot of us will work for or with NGOs, and NGOs are a mixed bag. In the U.S., the entire private sector and a lot of Academia, by the formal definition, is non-governmental. But in, in uh, much of the world, we think of NGOs as, as external and unaffiliated with any government entity. Another way to look at the organization of healthcare delivery system is provided by the uh, WHO, the World Health Organization. They have a framework that identifies six system building blocks, which together lead to four overall goals and outcomes. I'm going to read these, but I don't like them. Um, They have service delivery, a health workforce, information, medical products, vaccines and technologies, financing, leadership and governance. And I refer to these. They're actually actually, um, referred to in this paper if you want to read them. And then those six lead to four overall goals and outcomes, which is improved health, and that's both the level of health and equity of, of health, responsiveness, um, social and financial risk protection and improved efficiency. So, like I said, I'm, I'm a simple man, so I'm going to stick to my own framework that, that worked for a while while I was in Afghanistan. Okay, so what are some areas that you can that you can really focus on to build sustainable capacity? You can look at vocational and, and 
professional skills, medicine, dentistry, nursing, public health, health education, community health, any of the other 27 allied health fields, we counted them once, uh, professional, vocational training, and many others, lots of other things. Leadership skills. As I just mentioned, leadership skills are sorely needed in many sectors and settings. Fortunately, we've got this down pat in the United States government. Um, a leadership skill that's crucial is strategic think thinking. It's really using a systems approach that appreciates the different components of a system, appreciates the strengths uh, of the system, its constraints, vulnerabilities, interdependencies with other sectors, all the different ways that the system is, is uh, um, integrated with other systems. But this kind of systems approach is necessary so you can engage in serious strategic planning. And then you have to explore opportunities and options for improving things. You need to be able to ask and answer the what if question. What if I tried this? Well, here are some things that might happen. Well, that's good, but here are some bad things that might happen. So you want to be able to, to uh, encompass many of those. Administrative skills are another very important area that, that need to be taught. Administrative management, um, all the di different areas that I mentioned, planning, policy making, policy enforcing, proper stewardship of resources, personal and financial management, maintenance, and many, many others. Anybody have a curriculum developed to use in their in their uh, country to do all these things? Good. I don't think you should. And I'll talk about how to do this. I, I would, you know, the steps that you take when you, when you try to build this capacity, pick any of these areas. really doesn't matter. All are needed to some degree. And, and as I've already indicated, most of them overlap and are independent. But in my experience, I focus on an area where I'm comfortable and the other person is comfortable. With, with the mentoring relationship, an advising relationship, a planning relationship, training relationship, teaching relationship, whatever it is, whatever area you're talking about. And then while you're already engaged in that area, you bring in the softer areas. You bring in areas of money management, honesty and integrity and stewardship, and perseverance, mentoring subordinates, encouraging subordinates. You bring the, those in as an aside or as a non-confrontational secondary issue. I, I worked very closely with the uh, Surgeon General of the Afghan National Army. He's a Major General. I was a Colonel. He, um, he's my brother, by the way, now. We would, we would just have all kinds of talks uh, in his office when we're eating, um, when we're walking down the halls, when we're complaining about how he had to sign an authorization for a mop head to be released in his hospital. Um, just an, it's a I said, I, I talked about how that was the communist system. He said, no, it's a Russian system. Very clearly, uh, that, that kind of top-down control. Uh, but we would, we would talk one-on-one, -on -one, and then he would be talking to his staff, talking to his staff, berating his staff sometimes. And, and then my interpreter would be telling me what he was saying. He was saying almost exactly what we had been talking about in the hall just ten minutes before. So, so because of the ability to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with somebody in a trusted relationship, you'd be surprised on how effective your modeling for what you, what you, uh, what you say can, uh, can get out. The, I've, I've seen, on the other hand, people who uh, worked for me, they would schedule leadership class for a particular hour every week with a number of senior officials, and it just didn't work. 
you 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 learn those things you you model those things you have little one-on-one -on -one discussions and then you sit down that night and say that was a god sighting you know we were i was able to to model something there i don't really know what it was but it had a positive effect and that's why coming alongside somebody we use the phrase mentoring much more than we use training in the in the west i learned very well from books my wife can tell you about my library. It's on its second level deep, and I can I know what's behind them. Um, but I learn very well from books. But a lot of people are much more vocal learners or story learners or three cups of tea learners. It's just time that is really spent. And, and we struggle with that in the West because, you know, we've got 45 minutes. I got my eye on the clock. Carrie has got her taser back there, and it's loaded to stun. So I'm going to be done by quarter to by quarter to ten. But that's we're not learning in a relationship style. Um, but the, so the challenge is working in the right area with the right people at the right time. And of course, your skill set, your areas of interest, play a role in your in your choice. So my goal is when I engage is to make a difference. I try to find an area or I try to find areas where my actions or efforts are most likely to facilitate progress. Um, and in many areas, much is being done, but one or two few key tasks are missing. So sustainable progress doesn't seem to be taking place. So you should be able to use some of this stuff that we talked about, um, the different components, different content, to, to draw some conclusions or some hypotheses for your particular sphere of influence of some good intervention points. It's also very important, though, to, to set realistic expectations about what should and can be done. You'll never meet your timeline. You can just throw the timeline out. But it's very good to have some priorities, some kind of action thresholds. When you're going to go from step two to three to four, be ready to come back to two and do it again. Um, there, are many, there are many examples of individuals and groups that have gone in and do what they've always done. They've always done it well in other settings, so they think it's going to work well in this different place. Um, and results fall far below expectations. So the most, the most bang for your buck comes when the right thing is done with the right people at the right time. Now, on this note, I've got to step back again and, and reflect that our goal is not to deliver medical care. Our goal is to not build a stable government. Our goal is to not dig wells or even to plant churches. Our goal is to reach the unreached with the good news. This may include planting. It may include harvesting. It may include pushing a boulder a few centimeters towards the edge of the field so that planting can be done sometime in the future. I, uh, I saw an article in Evangelical Missions Quarterly and, and just this past July by Rickett and Morrison. They describe measurement in an article. They quote J.I. Packer's uh, Passion for Faithfulness, Wisdom from the Book of Nehemiah. And Packer, Packer says, he really describes how this should be done. He says, after setting biblically appropriate goals and embracing biblically appropriate means of seeking to realize them, assessing as best we can where we have got to go in pursuing them, and making any course corrections that our assessments suggest, the way of health and humility is for us to admit to ourselves that in the final analysis we do not and cannot know the measure of our success as God sees it. So it comes down to that. Now that doesn't mean we can just we can just go in with guns blazing and and uh, go where you know quoting a little bit of Shakespeare discretion is a better part of valor. Caution is preferable to rash bravery. 
we, we need to do this very wisely, but we need to also realize that God measures success differently than we do. Okay, so the, uh, um, some issues to consider. There, you want to consider the degree of development in the particular area. Remember Maslow? Um, and Jesus, Jesus said to work on the foundational issues of food and shelter before focusing on self-actualization. Well, he worded it a little bit differently, but I think that's what he, that's what he said. It's important to understand the degree of state development and, and this could, because this can provide very important information regarding the political and governance areas. What's the definition of a state? It's a political association that has effective sovereignty over a geographic area. States may be legal, rational, democratic. I think that's what we like to think that our state is, our government is. Or it can be patron, client, authoritarian. But those can still be legitimate states. What's the state requirement? What's the requirement for a resilient state? Some kind of organizational capacity, some kind of legitimacy, a political process to manage expectations. This is a compact. This is a deal between a state and its citizens, and it includes the concept of accountability, stewardship. And then, of course, the state has to have some kind of access to resources. And then putting putting these building blocks in place so that they fit together nicely is, is a blend of sound public administration and developing acceptable ways of wielding power. There are different ways of wielding power in our government. Some of it involves leaking things to the press. Some of it involves strong-arming. Um, some of those are more acceptable depending on what, what uh, city you're from in the United States. But we often find ourselves working in fragile states. And a fragile state is, is uh, where one or all of these characteristics is lacking. These fragile states grow more slowly than other low-income countries, and so they make it harder to reduce poverty. Extreme poverty is both a risk factor for and a result of conflict. I would suggest that it's possible for our actions in, in medical missions to contribute to stability by building institutional capacity that moves a fragile state towards becoming a resilient state. On the other hand, if we're not careful, our activities could undercut the legitimacy of the state. Another area on here, political issues, this is huge. Sometimes it seems every politician is either in power and trying to stay there or is not in power and trying to get in power. It's important to realize, though, that state formation is a long-term, domestically-driven process. We're not going to drive it from the outside. Uh, our actions can function as state building. They can be deliberate strategies designed to create or strengthen state institutions and processes so they can contribute but not drive. But it is very important to understand what's going on politically in the area where you're trying to work. Personally, I think it's naive to have the belief that you can get much done without considering the political implications. Um, rarely do you want to take sides, but you need to be informed. And then, and then realize that in many countries, the Ministry of Health is one of the weaker ministries or departments within the government structure. According to Collins, who I, I got cited on the reference sheet, Ministries of Health are not renowned for their strategic policymaking and policy impl implementation capacity. Many tend to lack the skills, systems, and structures to allow them to take on the strategic change role. 
and neither do they possess the authority within the government to promote change. Governance, governance and the rule of law, as I already mentioned, the challenge is to work in the right place with the right people at the right time. Access to government officials may help, or it may cause additional problems, additional challenges. Uh, religious, religious issues, as people of faith, we like to think we know what's going on in the, in the areas of spirituality and religion. We have to keep in mind, though, um, how we will engage those of other faiths in, an, in a respectful manner when opportunities come up to share our motivations, to share our convictions, and to share our concerns for others. Remember, many people, many of us, were are religious by birth, by family, by heritage, others by culture, others by choice, and others by conviction. Ethnic, see political and religious, and add a healthy mix of cultural differences and tradition. We're going to add, talk a little bit more about culture in a moment. And then security. Security is another big issue in the face of uh, religious extremism. You may have to choose different locations and or partnerships in order to reduce security risks. Uh, different in ways to invest in the uh, health system, um, horizontal investment versus vertical programs. Uh, we've talked a lot about Taylor & Taylor's Just and Lasting Change book on community-based development. They, they really recommend hard uh, horizontal development as the most effective approach to achieving sustainable improvement. But in a nutshell, the goal is to create an environment where communities can identify and, and develop their own solutions. This calls for partnerships, partnerships with outsiders, experts from outside, government officials. And then uh, it's important to note, though, that infusion of money is not key. As a matter of fact, it's often detrimental because it drains away self-reliance and it creates dependency. Government, though, must create an enabling environment. Experts help. They can assist with ongoing technical breakthroughs with education, but both government and these experts must relinquish control as capacity grows. Government officials need to adjust policies and regulations. They need to facilitate cooperation among different factions, and they need to channel essential resources. Outside experts, us, we can uh, build capacity and skills by training. We can introduce new ideas, new techniques, and we can help monitor change. Progress, though, comes from collaborative, bottom-up from the community, top-down from government officials, and then outside-in activities from the experts, with no one sector deciding that it alone is in charge. Now, there has to be a way to link investments to outcomes. So why measure? One is to keep on target. One's to learn. Another is to learn from your actions and then to account for time or resources. Who here has money and is completely unaccountable for that money? Not a whole lot of hands. If so, I want to talk with you because I'd like some of your money. Uh, what do you measure? You can measure people, a defined target group. You can measure outputs, outcomes, not inputs. Military, we do a lot of input measurement. It's not the right thing. And then you can measure things in certain time periods. But you, you may need to identify reasonable proxies for whatever these, these measures are that you want to go after. It's, it may be tough to find them. Um, six criteria by which to measure progress. These come from, this comes from uh, Taylor and Taylor's book. I mentioned this yesterday. It's equity, 
narrowing the gap between those with power, with property, with privilege, and then those without. You can measure sustainability, that the resources that to maintain are available within the local cultural context. Another is interdependence, measure how, how well a community is, is working within and then between um, uh, uh, within the community, between sectors, and then with other communities. You can measure uh, holism, integrated activities with all sectors, health, with education, with agriculture, with transportation, with housing, so, so lots of different integrated activities between those sectors. Um, collaboration between those in the community, between uh, community, ex community uh, members and government officials and with, uh, with external experts. So sometimes you can just measure collaboration. And then another, another important criteria is iteration. Start with something that you can achieve. What are the low-hanging fruit? Even if you don't think that's as important, it's more important to demonstrate some kind of a success than it is to necessarily do what's most important. However, in order to measure outcomes, you first have to be able to measure baselines. And uh, that's not easy. When you evaluate your, your actual results against your expected results, you either get confirmation that you're right on target, or more often you realize that some adjustment is necessary. Now I want to talk about some minefields, some cautions. A discussion of these could take all day, uh, but uh, there are some very good books. I've got a few of them listed on the reference sheet. One is uh, Gert Hofstetter. He wrote a book called Cultures and Organizations, Software of the Mind. He's really talking about cultural dimensions in business negotiations, but these dimensions apply just as much to any cross-cultural work. He defines these five cultural dimensions. The first of these is uh, power distance, and that has to do with inequality in society, and that inequality could be based on social class, on educational level, on occupation. Believe it or not, some people in the world are more comfortable with power distance than we are in, uh, in America. We are very egalitarian, so we have a low, we are low on that power distance um, uh, level. I'll give you some examples of this in, in a minute. Another is individualism versus collectivism. Who are the rugged individualists? That would be us. Um, in many other countries, co um, collectivism is much more important. That collectivism may be related to occupation or family. Uh, it may be related to power distance, may be related to the state. Third is masculinity and femininity. And this, this includes gender roles, but it really, talk, it really includes a lot of how acceptable it is in the culture to express feelings and to be assertive. Number four is uncertainty avoidance. How much do you focus, how much do you like uncertainty? I live for uncertainty. You give me a box, my goal is to do an end run around the box, destroy it as I go by it. I, I tolerate ambiguity. I, I enjoy taking risk. Um, that motivates me. That inspires me. It petrifies my wife. But, well, not petrifies, but um, some, in some countries and some cultures, uncertainty is a real challenge. And believe it or not, the, uh, the country to the south of us is very high on the uncertainty avoidance scale. And what that means is they often will not do something until they have doctrine, until they have some paper signed by government officials that says, go forward and do this. 
So you, when, you, when you find, when you talk to someone, they say, well, I have to get permission from the government, that usually is a sign that they have higher uncertainty avoidance than, than you. And then the fifth one, this is one that Hofstede added a little bit later, is long-term orientation versus short-term thinking. I think about next week, next month, many countries, many cultures think about a thousand years from now. I don't. But uh, long-term thinking versus short-term thinking, um, how you take action, what kind of planning. So let's look at some comparisons. Uh, by the way, there are, there are books written called individual, Individualism versus collectivism, Collectivism. You can spend a lot of time in this. Fantastic reads if you've got a few years. Now, here, Hofstede has a website that I, I think I list on the uh, on the sheet, you can just Google Gert Hofstede and you'll find it, where you can compare your home culture with the host culture. So I've got comparisons of three. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, have individual Arab countries, but he uses the Arab world. He defines it. It's a conglomeration of about five Arab countries. And then I've got China and Norway up here. So let's first look just at power distance. The, the U.S. is on the left on all three of these graphs. And the U.S. has a power distance of 40. The Arab world, much higher on power distance. You see very important Arabs and you see very unimportant Arabs. And you know, they're both good with that. The unimportant Arabs are comfortable with the fact that there are higher caste Arabs. How comfortable are we with that in the U.S.? That's almost anathema to us. Now compare that to China. 40, again, different, slightly different scale. China is also up to about 80. So, so the Arab world and China, very, very similar in that power distance measure. Look at Norway. Norway is even more egalitarian than us. So you go to Norway and you talk about power distance, or you do something that has power distance. An, a, an, a, a, um, an example that Hofstede uses in his book, how many, how many pastors do we have in here? How many pastors are comfortable with standing up on a pulpit and wearing a robe that makes them look somewhat angelic, of being called the most reverend such and such? I suspect that tonight and tomorrow when you go and look at the pastoral staff in, in this church, if they were not up on the stage, you would not be able to pick them out from most of the congregation. That's a sign of low power distance. So when you get uncomfortable with being treated as that exalted person from America, that, that is a matter of power distance difference. Um, and to some degree, you need to get comfortable with the fact that you're going to be treated differently in other countries with humility, but, but uh, that's, that's a matter, that's a, a real difference. Individuality, we're the rugged individualists. We pretty much peg the scale. Look at, uh, look at the difference in the Arab world. Much more, much more focused on collectivism. China, look at how low China is. You never pick out a Chinese person and praise them in a group of Chinese people. Praise them for individually for how, how excellent they have done. That is a terrible cultural faux pas. I love to be, well, I'm too humble to love to be praised, but, but that's, a very, that's a big difference between our culture and another culture. Ex masculinity, again, expressing feelings. See, see how we're pretty, 
were pretty high. Um, China is a little bit higher. Look at the frozen Norwegians. <laughs> and then uh, uncertainty avoidance. We're pretty comfortable with un- we're pretty comfortable with uncertainty. Um, the folks in the Arab world much less so. China much more so. They're much more comfortable with uncertainty. Norwegians pretty much uh, similar to us. Long-term outlook. Um, he developed his long-term outlook scale after he had done his work in the Arab world, so there's no recording for that. But look at China. Look at the difference. They, they had to make a new scale almost for how, how uh, Chinese are, are usually so much more focused on what's going to happen, not with our kids or our grandkids, but with many generations to go. So huge, huge differences here. I'm watching the clock, Carrie. It's okay. Um, worldview. Another big aspect of this is worldview. Much of the much of our worldview is culturally based, but it is strongly influenced by by uh, gender, by age, and of course by intrinsic values. One of the books I have on here is uh, uh, a book called Honor and Shame, written by Roland Muller, defines these three basic worldviews. And oh, by the way, they're all based on Genesis 3, on the influence of sin, guilt, shame, and fear. Now, I don't know about what you found, but I haven't found very many chapters in the Bible that don't mention these influences. I think that there are only, Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, four chapters that are sin-free. That would be the first two chapters of Genesis and the last two chapters of Revelation. The rest of the Bible all involves these issues. Guilt-based cultures, guilt versus innocence based on Roman law emphasizes right and wrong. We live in that culture. Those of us who are over 50 are driven by right-wrong. Those of us who have uh, kids who are lower than 50, um, it's a little bit more of the honor versus shame. Um, and there are shame-based cultures where, where fitting in is, is key and revenge is used to restore honor. So saving face, that's very much honor versus shame. And then fear-based cultures, fear versus power, a lot of spiritual struggles between animistic forces. All of these, by the way, are addressed at the cross. Repentance, sacrifice, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. All of the issues here are directed, are, are addressed at the cross. It's very important, though, to understand your worldview and the worldview of the the, uh, population with whom you're you're working. You need to re-examine the basis of your ethics in light of your culture and your worldview. Don't necessarily change your ethical convictions, but you need to use this new framework as you examine action or behavior in the other culture, especially corruption. Remember, the culture and worldview in this other setting are very likely very different from yours. Another book I have on the list called Strange Virtues, Ethics in a Multicultural World. Bernard Adenay um, talks about this a lot. He points out areas of difference in friendship, in communications, <coughs> in bribery, gender conflict, social ethics, lots of, uh, lots of different things. And then uh, creating dependence is another big area, and we've talked about that um, We've talked about that earlier. So wrapping up here, what are, what are some of the steps you should take? You certainly need to study in preparation. Again, if you've got a year, I've got some great books on there. Uh, you need to find trusted national partners who can help you, who can help you um, 
say the right thing, can you can work out a secret code with them with eye contact or, you know, when they go like this, that means stop putting your foot in your mouth, follow my lead, um, spend time with people who know the culture and partnering, partnering, partnering. It may be, it may be some, some, uh, experienced people with, uh, with, uh, gray hair from, from your, your same country. Um, it may be others. So, What's the bottom line? I think health is a, is a particularly good entry point for political visibility, for popularity, and I think, I think it's a good contributor to enhanced state legitimacy, I think. I'm certainly working on trying to prove that more to some of, our, uh, to, to some of the more uh, scholarly-based focus. But the levels of technical skill that's found, that are found in the health sector make it a very good candidate for wider state building. There's a lot of need for technical capacity building. When, when the, uh, while the primary objective of health sector initiatives must be improved health outcomes, these health interventions have great state building potential, if not only as a byproduct, but as a parallel goal. Health work should be planned in terms of what it can do to help underpin peace and underpin stability. Our goal, though, as Christ followers is to follow his lead. He told us to meet needs as a tangible manifestation of his love. So that should be enough. And that is the end. I got handouts up here, and I have four minutes before Carrie starts stunning me. Questions? Sir? Um, the question was, how do you deal with differences between older than 50 and uh, younger than 50 here in the United States? Um, I have teen, I had teenagers also, and I know I know what you're talking about, and that's why I alluded to honor and shame because uh, how many people these days are doing things because they're keeping up with their crowd cell phones, uh, you name it. It's, it's a lot of cultural things. And I used to think that uh, people would change their, their worldview with age, but I'm not sure that that's the case. Christ covers all of these things in, in, uh, in, at, at the cross. And the book that I mentioned in the, in the references, Honor and Shame, really talks about these three things. But I... I don't think that you or I as, as old guys over 50 with gray hair are going to have an impact on changing somebody's worldview as much as we're going to be able to understand the differences in worldview and how what I say from my worldview will be interpreted and incorporated by them from their worldview. But the most important thing is go right back to the cross. And that Again, the, the, the honor, ver, honor and Shame ver, book describes that very well. It's actually written for evangelism, but it talks a lot about that. I probably evaded your question very well, didn't I? Well, yeah, I like Honor and Shame in their lack of emphasis on the 
cultures mm -hmm. uh, because there's so much individualism. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't care if it dishonors their parents. I'm going to do what I want to do. And in some cultures, that's the height of their ethic is to do what would honor their family, their mm -hmm. name, and the future generations. Mm -hmm. And, and I, think that, I think that our goal should not be to focus on getting them to look at, at their worldview, honor, shame, right, wrong, uh, fear, power, guilt, those kind of things. I think it should be go underneath that to what are the true issues with the state of their heart and let God change their worldview, if, if it even needs to be changed. I think it has to be addressed, but I think it's addressed with the truth of the cross. Other questions? Sir? Do you have an email to provide your slides or outline or anything of that nature? Sure. Um, my email is there at the bottom. dtops with an extra s at gmu.edu. The, the photos make this huge, so I'll be deleting all the, uh, all the photos before I send them out. Sure. And eventually I'll write this up, but that'll probably be another 20 or 30 years before I have time. That, that comes in the honor versus shame. Uh, when someone is dishonored, to restore honor, they, they frequently have to take revenge. You see that a lot in, in, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. A lot of what's going on with the challenges that, that our, our military is having there is we're dishonoring. We're be, our actions are being interpreted as dishonoring, and so we have to be they, – they have to take revenge, revenge killings. Uh, the question was uh, was how do you how do you do this at the micro level? Um, I think it still is uh, assess the skills that you bring to the table and and the relationship that you have with someone at a at a certain level um, and and uh, keep these these ideas in the background as you interface with them. Um, I know. Uh, uh, there are opportunities that we have in Christian Medical Dental Association, Global Health Outreach, where we, we intentionally take a lot of uh, medical students and dental students along on our teams to partner with medical and dental students in the, in the host country, uh, hoping that you guys will twit together. I mean, I have a different concept of the word twit, and it's usually referred to me. Um, but you, you guys, you guys can interface in such a way that that I'll never understand. But but how do you talk? What kind of things do you talk about that always keep in the background justice and mercy and and humility and stewardship and, and all those other things that I talked that I talked about? Um, because the people that you interface with, are, there's a very good chance that some of the people that you guys interface with in 10 or 20 or 30 years are going to be ministers of health or deputy ministers of education or something like that. And you guys, by laying the foundwork, the, the foundation at this point can have a tremendous impact 
when I'm rocking on my front porch in my rocking chair, which might be sooner than I think. <laughs> so, so this this applies at all at all levels. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for your tolerance. <laughs>